Hello to our wonderful listeners out there. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Sassnack Files. This is Chelsea, and today we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 5, Untimely Resurrection. But before we get to the nitty-gritty of the episode, I want to take a moment to remind you guys, no matter where you're listening, you can always find the Sassanac Files on major platforms like iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Also, if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you head on over to social media and find the Sassnack Files on Facebook to like and on Instagram to follow. Yet another thing that you might do if you're looking for something to entertain you during Droughtlander is head over to the Sassnack Files blog and check out my most recent entry, Stockings, Waistcoats, and Corsets. Oh my! keeping with our Wizard of Oz theme that we've got going in the first half of season two while they're in Paris. So that one's all about 18th century fashion and how it presented challenges and a dream opportunity for the costume department at Outlander. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into 205, Untimely Resurrection. The first thing that I want to talk about today is the Mary, Alex, Jack situation that results in the Frank conundrum. (laughs) Because I feel like it's a pretty complicated situation and nobody really has any idea what's going on. Mary Hawkins ends up marrying Black Jack Randall, and we've known that for a couple of episodes now. However, we still don't know how that all comes about, and we're not likely to for a few more episodes, folks. So if by some chance you are actually watching along as you listen, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. If you have watched all of season two, you know what I'm talking about, and yeah, it's complicated. But what I really despise about this entire situation is Claire's incessant need to interfere with things that are really none of her business. And what's hilarious is that if Claire had not interfered in any of this shit, it would be so much different. (laughs) Claire is the catalyst to things being the way they are. (laughs) It blows my mind. So Mary was attacked in the last episode. Her and Claire were set upon by a band of rapists on their way back from the hospital, going to the dinner party that Claire and Jamie were hosting. So Mary's kind of just been shut up in her house, which, first of all, if I didn't despise her uncle already for forcing her into an arranged marriage, holy crap, like this guy. And I get that, you know, it's like Jamie said in the last episode, if people find out that Mary's a virgin no more, Like, she's done for. She'll be a spinster to the end of her days. And that's not anything of Mary's fault. That's just the way that society is. And it doesn't matter whether she was raped or whether she gave her virginity away willingly. It's still going to be a problem for her. So I get the intent behind it. But I feel like Mary's uncle is doing it more for himself than for her. Because he's just shut her up. He won't let her leave the house. And they're going back to England as soon as she's better. And Mary's miserable, and she's like, the only silver lining to this whole entire thing is that I don't have to marry the Vicomte anymore. 
which is a silver lining. She doesn't have to marry somebody twice her age that she's not attracted to and she doesn't care about. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's like, and now me and Alex can be together. So her and Alex, Jack Randall's little brother, for those of you that haven't watched recently and may be confused as to who he is, Mary and Alex have a relationship and they're actually in love with each other and it's really adorable. Like, it's so much easier to see Alex and Mary together than it is to picture Jack and Mary together. Alex and Mary are both very quiet and mild-mannered and sweet. And Jack is just, well, we all know who Jack is. So I think it's easier to fit those puzzle pieces together than it is to figure Jack into the equation. But nevertheless, Claire is convinced that, you know, according to the family tree that Frank has in his family Bible, that Mary Hawkins weds Jack Randall and together they have a child that is Frank's ancestor. And she is bound and determined to make sure that Mary and Jack get together. You can't blame her because she loves Frank. She wants to make sure that he exists. But I think Claire's still in the phase of thinking that she's going to change history in some way. I think there's still a misconception that she has the ability to change major events. And it's complicated. Diana has said that the way that time works in her universe is that it's linear. So if a person goes back in time, they can essentially change things. But it's not going to be major events that they are able to change. They are only able to change the course of things that are affected by one or two people's decisions. Major events like wars and political schemes and things like that that involve hundreds or thousands of moving parts and many, many people's decisions all collaborating into one result. Those are the kinds of things that no matter how hard Jamie and Claire try, they're not going to be able to change. However, things that involve one or two people, like, say, the marriage of someone or the decision of someone to migrate to America, those are things that are in the realm of possibility as far as changing the future. So Claire could very well be changing the future by doing this. I mean, nobody knows. It is possible within the realm of Diana Gowden's universe, let's put it that way. When Claire is visiting Mary while she's all locked up in her uncle's house, Mary says, can you please give this letter to the authorities at the Bastille to get Alex released? And Claire thinks about it. She hesitates. And I just have such a hard time with Claire in this episode, quite frankly. Her Decisions are so questionable in my book. Why on earth are you hesitating? Like, I get it. It's Frank, and you love him. But at the same time, these are two completely innocent individuals, and you are debating burning this guy's letter of release and condemning him to a life in prison, knowing he hasn't done a damn thing to you or the people that you love. <laughs> All for the sake of something that might cause something to happen. Like, she's not even sure that it's going to work. 
And so, yeah, I I have a serious issue with Claire. <laughs> Even hesitating to get Alex released. Which, of course, she decides not to burn the letter and everything ends up sort of okay until their walk in the gardens and she talks him out of marrying Mary. She said, look, you can't give Mary the life that she's used to or the life that she wants. And it's not fair to her to drag her around Europe while you try to find a job not being able to provide for her. And I just think that she may be telling you she's okay with it, but in the end, it's not going to work out. And you have to consider that and set aside your own feelings and think about what's best for her. Not taking into account what Mary wants at all. I honestly think Mary would much rather be poor and with the man she loves than to have a life of luxury. If she wanted a life of luxury, I'm sure her uncle could find her some minor noble to marry back in England where nobody has idea that this assault ever took place. So Claire, mind your own business <laughs> is what I'm saying because God damn. Oh man. <laughs> it just hurts me a little bit. Every time I watch that scene, Alex is so heartbroken and Claire's like, Oh, it broke my heart to break his. And I'm like, well, clearly it didn't break your heart that much. <laughs> Or you wouldn't have done it. Knowing what happens later in season two, I really am curious what would have happened if Claire had not interceded at all. Like, I think we would have had the same end result. Just a little bit more happiness for Mary and Alex, which is sad. What I really loved about these conversations with Claire and Mary and Claire and Alex is that Frank is woven into the fabric of this season. We only actually see Frank, the physical character, in one episode of season two, but he is very much present in the entire season. He's always being thought of in the back of Claire's mind or being brought up when his ancestors are talked about. Just little things like that. And it's really cool. And you don't even necessarily notice it all the time. Like, there's this beautiful theme that Bear McCreary has composed, and it's got a clarinet in it. And the whole purpose of the clarinet being in the Frank theme is because Bear McCreary wanted to include an instrument that would not have ever been heard by Janie. It didn't exist until the late 18th century, I believe. And so Janie never would have ever heard a clarinet. And so I thought that was very clever because you're dealing with Janie and Claire's theme, which has Highland bagpipes and different flutes and things like that that are very instruments of their time in the 18th century. And so the fact that even the music completely separates these characters is just brilliant, which makes it completely identifiable as Frank's theme whenever you hear it. So when Alex gets up and walks away and Claire is sitting on the bench thinking after that scene, you hear Frank's theme weave into the score. And it's just really great because even though Frank isn't there physically, you can feel him in the music. So that's one thing that I really do love about this show is 
the little things. So, still no clearer on how Jack and Mary end up having a child, but Alex and Mary are miserable, and apparently that accomplished Claire's aim. So, moving on, we'll talk about the state of the Jacobite Rebellion, because it's getting kind of hairy, guys. (laughs) Jamie and Claire keep thwarting Prince Charlie, and he just keeps popping up like that groundhog on the movie Caddyshack. (laughs) He just keeps popping up and they can't freaking get rid of him. So they had the dinner and the dinner was successful and did achieve the aim that they were hoping it would achieve. Sandringham approaches Jamie at Versailles and they're having a conversation and he says, you know, I must say that if it's any consolation, your dinner did accomplish one aim and it allowed me to take the measure of your prince. And Jamie's like, oh yeah, what'd you think? (laughs) Fingers crossed behind his back, you know? (laughs) And I love Simon Callow as the Duke of Sandringham. He's just so great. Sandringham goes on to say, honestly, it kind of surprises me, Jamie, because you seem like such a good judge of character, yet you've Hitch your horse to the prince's cart. Like, what's up with that? And Jamie has a very good reply. He's getting very good at this espionage double agent stuff, guys. He says, I see the prince for what he is, but his father is the true king. That got me to thinking. So I'm going to sidetrack for a minute because I just finished reading The Scottish Prisoner, which for those of you that haven't read the books, It is part of the Lord John Grace series that Diana Gabaldon has also written. And it takes place in the 20 years that Claire and Jamie are apart. It takes place basically between seasons two and three. Let's keep it simple. Between seasons two and three. Jamie is dealing with some stuff in that book that really makes you wonder if he regrets his decisions. He trusted in Claire and he believed in what he was doing in Paris. But at the same time, seeing the aftermath of all of it, I think he has a lot of doubts as to whether he made the right choice in constantly thwarting Charlie. Like if they had not consistently tried to undermine him and keep people from giving money to the cause, would the Jacobite Rebellion of 45 ended differently? Maybe they would have won. And I think that that's something that Jamie struggles with a lot in those in-between years. And, you know, I think he makes his peace with it, but I don't, like, they're never going to know if what they did had any real bearing on the end. So I think it's only natural for him to wander. But I also believe that if Claire had not been in the picture at all, Jamie would have ended up on the side of the Jacobites. Because, honestly, I think Jamie would rather be roasted over a spit alive than be on the side of the English. So I think his loyalties naturally lie with the Jacobites. If Claire had not been there whispering in his ear the entire time, hey, look, we need to stop this from happening, blah, blah, blah. He would have ended up helping his uncle and fighting for Prince Charlie. Not necessarily because he thought the prince was the best person in the world. I think anybody can see in this version 
of the events of Scottish history that Prince Charles Edward Stuart is a moron. But yeah, I just think that he agrees with the Jacobite beliefs more than he would ever be willing to support the English. And there weren't a lot of fence sitters at this time in Scottish history. You kind of had to pick a side. So that's kind of where I'm at on that. Back to where we're actually at, which is him trying to thwart the Jacobite Rebellion. And Prince Charlie has had his support withdrawn from his investors because of the disaster that was Jamie and Claire's dinner. But he's now gone into business with the Comte Saint-Germain, which if you'll remember the last episode, Charlie and Saint-Germain left Jamie and Claire's party together and now have hatched this plan. And Charlie says, you know, the comp's no lover of my cause, but um, I've taken out a bank loan and I'm going to go into business with him to acquire this shipment of Portuguese Madeira. And then I'll take my half and he'll take his half and he can do what he wants with his half. And I will put my half towards the Jacobite Rebellion. It's been decided that the Comte will use his ship and his employees to acquire the Madeira, and then Jamie will broker buyers and sell the wine. That's where we're at. And Jamie's like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, how many people are there? How many ways are there for Charlie to make enough money to support an army? Like, it's one thing after another. He tries his level best, you know, he's like, well, I must say I'm hesitant about going into business with the comp. He doesn't have a very good reputation. And Charlie warts Jamie again. He's like, yeah, I know he dwells in heretical circles, but I don't believe those rumors any more than I believe the rumors about your wife. You know, the rumors that say she's La Dame Blanche, <laughs> the rumors that Jamie started to to keep Charlie from pushing trollops into his lap at the brothel. <laughs> yeah, he didn't ever believe that. Good Lord. It's just one thing after another with this guy. That look that Jamie has where he's just kind of staring blankly off into space listening to Charlie that's made so many memes <laughs> over the years. That's the look that I think I would have on my face if I had to listen to one more scheme that Charlie hatched in the hopes of a rebellion in Scotland. Yeah, I get where Jamie's at, but, you know, he just puts his big boy pants on and soldiers on. He's like, okay, well, let's do this. And I think in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, well, at least I'm responsible for brokering the sell of this wine. So maybe I can screw something up there. <laughs> you know, his, the wheels are turning and he's trying to work on it. And that's what leads to the scene with Claire in the study where she's like, well, maybe I can fake smallpox with some herbs. Let me think about it. <laughs> which we see the results of in the next episode, which is kind of cool. But it leads to this fantastic scene. This portion of the podcast, I actually just kind of want to step away from like the major themes of the episode and talk about two little scenes. The first being the scene between Claire and Jamie in the study where he gives her the apostle spoons. First off, you can see how touched Claire is by this gesture. Apostle spoons are a set of 12 silver spoons that have 
each of the 12 apostles melded into the tip of the spoon. And it was a common christening gift in the 18th century. And they're beautiful and very valuable. To this day, honestly, there's not that many authentic 18th century ones left. I think there's a set in the British Museum, I believe. A complete set that's very similar to the ones that Jamie presents to Claire. It's a very touching gift, and he gives it to Claire as a christening gift for their child. And Claire's kind of touched because they had the argument in the last episode, you know, that she feels like she's been going through this pregnancy alone. And here we find out that Jamie actually sent for these spoons months ago. When they first arrived in Paris, he wrote to Jenny and asked her to send them because they've been in his family for years. And it's the tradition that the eldest child of the heir to Lollybrock receives these as a christening gift. And Jenny, bless her, was so excited she could barely hold the quill steady in her hand as she was writing to Jamie. It's so cute. I love this scene. And it's really beautiful because Claire gets a chance to voice her doubts about being a mother, which I think is a very relatable thing. Any person, especially a young person, that's going to be a first-time mother or father They have these doubts about whether they can do it and do a good job and what kind of parent will they be. So I really appreciated this scene. You know, Claire's mom and and dad, they both died when she was very young. I think she was probably like six or seven. And she was raised by her uncle. So she doesn't really have any concrete memories of her mother. And therefore, she has doubts as to whether when the time comes, she'll be able to have that nurture aspect to her. And Jamie, who's also lost both of his parents at this point, I'm sure he has some of those doubts as well. You know, he has nieces and nephews, but I don't know. I just feel like it's a very relatable thing that they're going through. And Jamie, God bless him. Like these little moments are the reason that we love. Jamie Fraser, in my opinion. I mean, yes, the grand gestures are great, but it's the little moments where, like this one, he just sits on the couch and he has this wonderful line. It says, what you don't can, you'll learn. We'll learn together. Like, I'm here with you and we're going to raise this child together. Your mistakes are my mistakes and your successes are my successes and we will do this together no matter what. And I, I just love it. I love the partnership that these two have and that he always seems to know what to say to put her mind at ease and vice versa. It's just a great, great love story. And I think it's aspirational and that's why people love it. So That's the first little scene that I wanted to talk about. The second one is actually towards the beginning of the episode. It's the scene where Jamie and Myrta are talking at the wine warehouse the morning after the attack and the dinner. At this point, Myrta probably hasn't had any sleep because he was at the hospital all day with Claire and Mary, and then the attack happened on their way home. Then they had the dinner party. 
and then they were in jail all night and now they're working the next day and Murta has been on the trail of San Germain all morning into the afternoon. We find out some important stuff. So Murta has been talking to some of the ladies at the brothel and finds out that there is a gang that prowls the streets in search of prey called Le Disciple and they are French aristocrats. But they wear masks to conceal their identity, which is essentially what Claire laid out for Jamie when he was asking her, did you remember anything more about the attack? So they're 99% sure that these are the guys. And then Myrta like puts the cherry on top and says, and you know, the way into this gang is a maidenhead, which basically means that to be initiated into the gang, you have to rape a virgin, which, good lord, like, the brutality is so terrible. Like, how can people be that awful? Just go in search of a unassuming young woman who's a virgin to give her the worst possible first sexual encounter ever. And that's your initiation in this gang. Why would you even want to be part of this gang if that's what you had to do? Anyway, uh, I don't know if Leticebla actually existed in real life. I really hope not. Myrta feels absolutely terrible about what happened the night before. Just completely guilt-ridden. Jamie sees it, and he's like, you know, what's wrong? And... Myrta's like, you gave me your wife and your child unborn to protect and that wee English lassie, and I failed you. And I've heard some criticism of how Jamie handled this scene because they felt like it was, like, harsh and callous and he didn't have a right to be mad at Myrta. It wasn't his fault. I don't think that's how this scene was intended to come across. Jamie, I think, is still very upset by what happened, rightfully so, because his wife was attacked. His child was put in danger. Of course he was upset, but he also 100% realizes that it wasn't in any way, shape, or form Myrta's fault. Because he says, you did no such thing. You didn't fail me. You were outmanned. I understand. But at the same time, Jamie knows Myrta better than any other character in this entire series. So what he says is what he knows is going to give Myrta some peace of mind. And he says, you know, if that's how you really feel, then you keep after him. You do what you have to do to find this guy and bring him to justice. Because Myrta is a very proud Scottish Highlander. And if he believes that something is his responsibility, he's not going to rest until that is brought to fruition. He's going to make sure that the Comte Saint-Germain and Le Disciple, or whoever is responsible for this attack, is held accountable for their actions. And I think it's a matter of Jamie knowing that that's what Myrta needed. He needed purpose. I really think that's what this scene was. But seeing Myrta's guilt, I thought Duncan Lacroix did a really good job portraying that. Because we don't really get a lot of Myrta, so this was a scene where we could kind of get inside his head a little bit. 
And I agree with Jamie. I don't think that Murta had anything to apologize for. It wasn't his fault. I mean, five full-grown, healthy men against one man, a pregnant woman, and a tiny little girl. There was no avoiding this. They were outmanned. I think Jamie handled it the way that he knew it needed to be handled. Speaking of things being handled the way they need to be handled, let's talk about Versailles. Jamie and Claire are at Versailles, and the cockroach, Blackjack Randall, makes his reappearance. I felt like it was really great, this scene, because I was reading the making of Outlander, the series, by Tara Bennett, and there are a lot of great interviews with cast and creators of the show. So if you like the behind the scenes stuff, I highly recommend getting those books. Plus they have gorgeous pictures. The official images from the show are in there. The writer, Richard Kahan, said that he wanted Blackjack to have almost a lightness to him in this episode because he got what he wanted from Jamie and Claire and Wentworth. In his book, he's one. So he doesn't have any reason to be that evil, on-edge character that we've met previously. But in being this lighthearted, almost in awe character, he's almost more creepy. And he really is just kind of fascinated by the fact that it's like he said, it's like the fates are toying with us setting our feet on seemingly divergent paths that somehow converge. It really is freaky how they can kind of be turned completely the opposite way. And it's like they just are walking in opposite directions of a circle and they still, they meet (laughs) halfway around the other side. So yeah, the entire situation, like, I can see Blackjack's point, like, this is freaking unbelievable. And I'm sure that Claire and Jamie are thinking the exact same thing. They're like, this is unbelievable. Really? (laughs) But the brilliance of this scene is that basically everybody's against Blackjack, but for different reasons. So even King Louis, I mean, at this point in history, France and England aren't exactly on the best of terms. They're not best buddies. They're not even allies. So while Louis doesn't have any cause to be like outwardly hostile, like he doesn't have any personal issue with Blackjack, but he still kind of feels like he needs to be put in his place as a soldier of the British crown, which provided this fantastic moment for the audience and for Jamie and Claire when he sends Blackjack down on his knees and that smirk on Jamie's face he's like yeah now who's laughing it provided a really great opportunity and that was something that you know didn't need to be included in the episode it wasn't vital to the plot but I felt like it was one of those jewels that was just put in there and really really worked so I loved that and then I was reading also in the making of Outlander a interview with Sam Hewen where he said that him and Tobias kind of talked at length about this scene because you know there was a lot of question about the dynamic between Jamie and Blackjack what would it be like you know at Wentworth Jamie had surrendered and 
Blackjack had won. Like, there was this impasse between the two. There wasn't really any more to be said. But what they kind of agreed upon was that neither Jack nor Janie walked away from that night unscathed. Jack had some very real physical injuries that almost killed him, and he's still dealing with that. You can see it, you know, when he raises from bowing to Annalise. He's in some real pain, and Jamie has kind of overcome his physical and mental scars. I mean, his hand is still bad, and it will be for the rest of his life, but he's kind of overcome his mental scars. So Sam said, what it came down to in that scene was this great juxtaposition because when we had left them in Wentworth, Jack was in the position of power and Jamie was at rock bottom. And now we see Jack on the descent and Jamie on the rise. And that is really great to see these two characters completely flipped around from where we had seen them previously. When Jamie challenges Jack to a duel, I really loved the way that this was shot because it's completely in Claire's point of view. We didn't go in there with Jamie when he walked away. We watched him walk away. We watched him talk to Jack and Claire's just horrified this entire time. And when Jack reached out and touched Jamie, that moment is kind of burned into my brain because of what happens later on in in season three, it's a great parallel that I had never noticed before, especially given that what happened in season three was improvised. So yeah, really great that they had that parallel there. I appreciated it. But I think Claire fully expected Jamie to rip Jack's hand off when he reached out and touched him. But at that point, Jamie had just challenged him to a duel and Jack had accepted. So Jamie is probably thinking, you know, I can wait a few more days to rip your hand off it's fine (laughs) but this whole duel it's like Jamie said you know he challenged him he accepted he said he owed me a debt so if you'll remember back to Wentworth prison episode 115 Jack offered Jamie the death of his choosing if he gave him his unconditional surrender and that's what ended up taking place So in To Ransom a Man's Soul at the very beginning, Jamie was pleading with Jack to kill him and Jack was about to slit his throat when the cows infiltrated Wentworth and all hell broke loose. So Jack's like, yeah, I'll duel with you. I owe you a death. Whether that death is Jamie's or Jack's, he will consider that debt repaid, which is very interesting. Jack has all of these facets. He's a fascinating villain because even though he is evil at the core, he still has this odd sense of honor and it's it's very interesting to me. <laughs> so Claire and Jamie head back to their house and we see this explosive argument. I think it's probably the biggest argument Claire and Jamie have in the show, in the series really. I can't recollect an argument that had this much dynamite. Yeah, it's bad. Claire has sworn a false charge to the officers of the Bastille that Jack is the one that attacked her and Mary to get him arrested and keep him safe from Jamie because she knows Jamie has every intent of killing him. And at this point, she's 
fully convinced that Jack is Frank's ancestor and that he needs to exist for at least the next year to conceive Frank's direct ancestor with Mary Hawkins. So Jamie is obviously pissed. He's like, there's no reason for you to do this. Why would you do this? She says, you know, dueling is outlawed in France. If you get caught, you're going to spend the rest of your life in a French prison. That's not okay. So that's number one. Number two, you're about to become a father and you have to think of me and you have to think of your child and your responsibilities to us. It's not just about you anymore, which pot calling the kettle black, Claire. (laughs) And the third reason is because if you kill Jack, Frank will never exist. Yeah, you remember Frank, right? (laughs) And that kind of just throws Jamie for a loop for a minute. He's like, what? What what on earth does Frank have to do with any of this? She finally is like, Black Jack marries Mary Hawkins and they have a child together. And that child is Frank's direct ancestor. If you kill Jack, Frank will never exist. And Jamie kind of takes a moment to digest that. And Claire's like, he hasn't done anything to either one of us. And Jamie just freaking loses it. He's like, oh, so that justifies letting a monster like Blackjack Randall live? Are you freaking kidding me? I completely get Jamie's side of the argument in this. And I know you guys are probably seeing a parallel. But I think I said it in like the first episode. I identify with Jamie so much. He's like my spirit animal. I get every action that he makes and every thought in his head like, I feel like we're the same person a lot of times. So I think that's why I have a tendency to side with him a lot. He's me in book one, only with red hair and a lot taller. (laughs) So I totally get where Jamie's coming from in this. He's saying, you can't ask this of me. You were there. You saw what he did to me. How can you ask me to let this guy keep on living? Then he snaps. He's like, no, you know what? I can't live while Blackjack Randall lives. So if you want him to live, you're going to have to kill me right now, right here. And he puts a dagger to his heart and he puts Claire's hand on it and he is deadly serious. And she's like, all I'm asking for is a year, just a year. I honestly, this is where I have the biggest problem with Claire because I honestly think if she had let him think about it because he stopped he like loosened his hold on the dagger and he was thinking about it you know I honestly think if she had just pleaded with him a little more and she said I swear I will help you bleed him myself just give it a year I honestly think that he would have done it for her because he loves her that much but instead she goes for the anger route and is like you owe me that much Jamie oh sweet Jesus Claire Because then he's got his defenses back up. He's not thinking about what Claire wants anymore. He's like, no, like what? So you weren't just doing that out of the kindness of your heart. You were waiting for a day to call in your debt. And now you're calling in your debt with the man that made me play his whore and lived in my nightmares and in our bed and almost drove me to take my own life. That's the man that you want me to pay this debt with. And she's like, yeah, son of a bitch. (laughs) Oh, Claire. I'm sure he just feels 
completely betrayed in this moment. How could he not? He thought that no matter what, Claire would be the one person that would always be on his side. And now she's asking him to let Blackjack Randall live and keep him from exacting his vengeance on this man that put him through so much misery. I wish she would have just let it be Jamie's decision because if he actually thought about it, I'm sure he probably would have come around to her way of thinking eventually. But instead, she just threw it back in his face and was like, you owe me. That was not good. Not good, Claire. <laughs> not at all. Ugh. So I totally got it when after everything was said and done and Jamie's like, you know what? I pay my debts. And if this is what you're asking, then fine. One year. And then she like reaches out to like thank him and touch him and stuff. And he's like, don't touch me. Like you just ruined Everything that I have been hoping for for months, you you ruined it. So don't sit here and pretend that everything's okay because I'm pissed at you and I don't know that we're going to get past this, you know? Like, that's where they're at. That's the level of this argument. So, yeah, I totally got Jamie's anger. And while I get, I get where Claire's coming from, like, logically, yes, I see it. That she's worried about Frank and she loves Frank. There's no getting around that. But it's completely unfair of her to ask Jamie to not live his life the way that he would normally live it for the sake of a man that he's never going to know. You can't ask that of somebody to make that kind of sacrifice. So, yeah, I just think that the whole situation was extremely unfair. Par for the course for this episode, I just felt like Claire was an unfair human being. So (laughs) that's where we're going to leave it for... 205, Untimely Resurrection. Before we part ways, though, I want to take a moment to talk about performance of the episode, which I felt like Sam and Kat were in a dead heat this episode. They were both absolutely fantastic. And I feel like that showed in the scene at Versailles. They were so in sync with each other when Jamie first came up to see Blackjack and the King and Claire all talking. And there was this point where they were kind of having this banter back and forth. And then Jamie curls his fist and Claire just reaches out and touches his elbow, like to keep him grounded. And I feel like Sam and Katrina have this way of just being perfectly in sync when they're in a scene together. And it adds this whole other element to their characters. So Hats off to that. And then, of course, the fight scene. Katrina just sobbing rivers for the entire scene. And Sam having this barely contained anger. It was so great, which leads me to the quote of the episode, which was when Jamie says, I can stand a lot more than most. I've proven as much. But must I bear everyone's weakness? May I not have my own? I really like that because it basically sums up the argument. Like Jamie has such a great way of putting things into words. And this quote is exactly what Claire's asking of him. He's not allowed to be a human being in Claire's opinion in this argument. (laughs) He's not allowed to have his own feelings. He has to put everything aside for her feelings, which is extremely selfish of her. So yeah. Like I said, Jamie has such a good way of speaking his mind 
in saying it eloquently, and that's one of my favorite characteristics of his. Yeah, that was definitely my quote of the episode. Alrighty, guys. Well, before we wrap up for the day, I want to remind you guys that If you have any comments or questions about this episode or any previous episode of The Sassnack Files, make sure to send an email to thesassnackfiles at gmail.com or put a comment in the thread of the episode that you have a question or comment on for an opportunity to have your voice heard on the next episode of The Sassnack Files. Also, if you like what you're hearing with The Sassnack Files, make sure to head on over to your favorite podcast platform and leave a rating and review to help us get more circulation and we love to hear from you guys. I think that about wraps it up. Make sure to join me next week when I'm going to be discussing season two, episode six, best laid schemes. Until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later.